You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, co-hostest with the mostest, although I think I demoted you, but Paul Doroshenko. I'm glad you forgot about the demotion. <laughs> I forgot what I demoted you to, just co-hostest. That's fine. I'll take whatever I get. Yeah. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a simple man. Yeah, except you didn't want to be my sometimes co-host. You wanted to be more than sometimes co-host. Whatever. I mean, again, I will work with you whatever, you, whatever you assign me to. I'm just happy to be alive and that we're still recording the podcast and that uh, here we are. It's now mid-May. It's now mid-May. And it's coming we up are... on uh, 20 years that I've been a lawyer. Oh, yeah. This is like, this podcast will be just before your 20-year anniversary. Yeah, May 19th. And it'll also be my anniversary. There you go. Lawyerversary. Mine's on the 16th. And it will be eight years. I think it's Jason's birthday on the 17th. Yeah. Actually, our office is is pretty crazy for May birthdays because we have Jason on the 17th, Emma on the 18th. Um, Darren was earlier this week. Darren was earlier this week. Zelda's the 11th. Um, I'm the 20th. You're the 21st. Yeah. Uh, a... We used to have a calendar in the office with everybody's birthday written on it. Uh, of course, now we haven't been in the office, so I have no idea. I know, and, and yet again, I my my dreams of you bringing in a nice cake with like salted caramel or chocolate ganache or something for my birthday will be dashed. Yeah, because um, we are, although we're working in the office again, we are working very distantly and with not that many people in there. But it's it's going okay. It's going okay. We're getting things done. Yep. Um, the, um, you know, business has returned. Yeah. So things are, things are happening. And then, you know, I had a meeting with, uh, the DUI Defense Lawyers Association, which by the way, shout out to the DUI Defense Lawyers Association. If you are a lawyer interested in defending DUI cases, you should join. It's of totally worth it. Of course you should. And Kyla's the, uh, Canadian, uh, ambassador and so forth. And other so things, other yeah. things. So, uh, you can just contact her and, the board. Uh, <laughs> and arrange it. Uh, but yeah, we've had weekly meetings and uh, I've been doing one opportunity knocks to look at things that you can do differently while you're in this period of time where you don't have the same sort of productivity that you normally would have. And Kyla's had the uh, weekly meeting that she's been leading. How did it go today? Uh, today was good. We had a very lengthy presentation from Marcus Landsberg on podcasting as well. I know you did podcasting earlier I know, this and week. I cut him off yesterday, and Tim was a little bit choked with me. But I thought, oh, I can tell Marcus has more than we have well, to cover he, in this next minute. And I think he's probably got quite a bit to say. 90 minutes today on podcasting. Well, there you go. But our we've been, for the last four weeks, doing... Um, um, wellness weeks and, and the wellness week session that I've been leading with Tim Huey has been on getting off the couch for all the people that were having trouble being motivated during the shutdown and the pandemic, you know, what can you do to get yourself back moving and working again? And, uh, we got people off the couch. That's good. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, we have driving law to talk about. I assume this is we driving have... law with Kyla Lee. And what? And I, and I did talk about, I presented about podcasts and I talked about this podcast. And so people might be listening to it this week who listened to our presentation. Marcus talked about our podcast again today. Did he? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. He thought it was genius. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's um... great. I'm glad, <laughs> glad he I'm glad he did. I keep thinking we should be throwing lawyer jokes in there, but now I'm worried about offending lawyers. Um, Anyway, go ahead. The the point is, today, we have something major to talk about, because there was a, like, major announcement about ICBC, and of course, during this whole pandemic. We have speculated about the impact of ICBC. Speculated, talked, suggested, given ICBC some ideas. They won't be taking any of them. No, no. So... Uh, it was actually I was kind of surprised because um, I don't I don't think it was necessary to make this statement at this point. I don't uh, I think it's political. I mean everything's political, but I think it was really very political. Um, and it's uh, ICBC, uh, you know, the government stepping up and and preparing everybody in British Columbia for the fact that ICBC is not is still going to be a dumpster fire. It was uh, almost <laughs> like they heard you know. Me and everybody else that's been saying, hey, you know, this is going to bring us out of the dumpster fire. It's going to put out the flames and we can keep the keep the normal. And and they were like, shit, how do we backpedal and damage control this? Yeah, exactly. And I think the uh, the concern was get it out, get it out early uh, and try and control the na- the narrative and uh, blame the continued dumpster fire on COVID-19. So, yeah. So ICBC is the aspect that we hadn't considered or even talked about is ICBC investing the money that they get in. And of course, I didn't even know that they did that. Yeah, you know, of course they do. Uh, you know, they've got essentially the equivalent of mutual funds. Probably it's invested with some organization or organizations to spread it out, uh, to be able to have the money to draw on when they have to draw on the money. So, um, so then let me ask you this, where the fuck were their financial advisors when things in China started going topsy turvy and the financial advisors that we're speaking publicly, we're going, this is going to lead to a world economic downturn. There were some, I think, who probably did. But I mean, I looked at my mutual funds and they took a hit and everybody's, I think, across the board took a hit. And I think it's going to be a long time before we uh, we recover. I still think you know, like 30 months we're going to be in the in the uh, in the dumps here. But the the I, I, I am surprised because there was people on Twitter who I was talking to and I was reading their tweets, people I know back in January were saying, look, this is going to be a crisis. And I remember, you know, there's one person on Twitter who sends us sometimes horrible, nasty messages and then other times are okay. Um, Don't even talk about him. I don't don't want to Um, even talk about him. I don't want to give him. Anyway, attacked me for um, comments that I made about the economy crashing back in February, predicting this and saying that we could end up with a global economic crisis and now, you know, here we are with a global economic crisis. So, you know, if I knew it and I was a lawyer in, you know, a criminal defense lawyer in Vancouver, you would think that these financial analysts would have had a better idea about it. But I didn't, you know, dump all my stock and buy gold. You know, I still decided to ride it out. Um, and uh, that's what I'm doing. Yep. And there was another financial analyst I heard on uh, on CBC the other day talking to Gloria Makarenko, who said, uh, you know, the people who, who rode out 2008 uh, ended up doing better than the people, had you had you sold your stock and bought gold and sat on it, you're better off just to sit and ride it out. 
Yeah, I wrote out 2008. I had like $42 in my bank account. Exactly. Yeah, you're a student in law school. So. <laughs> and I have more than $42 now. Yeah. Well, all of your money, I think, is in property distributed across the province. So. That is correct. Yeah. So, so long as they don't uh, find that all of the properties that you own are formerly uh, dry cleaners or gas stations <laughs> with leaky, leaky tanks, then you should be fine. Hopefully. Um, anyway, I thought we could discuss some of the stats that ICBC brought out today. Next week, we're going to have Eric McGracken back on the podcast to talk about all of this. this... Well, he'll have a be- he'll have a sophisticated angle yeah, on it. He's going to so... have he's going to give us the angle of how it's going to affect <clears throat> you with your accident claim and and what he predicts going forward and those types of things. But I thought we would just go over the numbers yep. because they're fascinating. Let's get them out. So, uh, ICBC has had uh, what they predict is $158 million in savings in since mid-March. Because, because of the reduction in claims. Because of the shutdown, 46% right? 46% reduction in claims. Yeah. And so that's a, a big huge, savings. Huge reduction million. in claims. Half the claims, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you'd think, starting with that, oh man, this is looking good for ICBC. Well, it's um, those are projected, right? So that is what they project to not be paying out. It's not money that they've saved in the last six weeks. I'm sure they have paid in the last two months. I'm sure there have been, you know, they haven't had to pay body shops. Yeah. Um, all of those body shops out there are struggling right now because claims are down 46%. And all of those body shops, I, I wonder if they pay PST if. Well, they, they, they're still saving the money because their entire structure is based on an assumption that there's going to be claims paid out, right? This is no, how insurance companies No, they're saving money and they can work it out. You know, they see the claims coming in and they know what those claims are going to be worth down the road. And that's how they come up with $158 yeah. million. Yeah. But, but the, apparently the changes that they made to the rate structure and allowing people to change their, their policies without paying a change fee has cost them $283 million in a decline in revenue. So $158 million saved, $283 lost, million lost in revenue. If that math does not work. Well, it doesn't well. work for them. I mean, there's uh, you think about it, as I have said before, most businesses fail um, because they're competing. They're not competing and they're still failing. Well, they're also concerned, and, and I think rightly so, that a lot of people, you know, they've changed their policy and they're out of work. They're not changing it back, right? They're not, you know, it's not going to be July and suddenly they go back to their, you know, commercial policy that costs them $4,000 a year. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Think about, I mean, I, I just keep thinking about car dealerships, okay? All of these people are working at home. Mm-hmm. They don't need a car. Uh, a significant portion of this, I mean, they had a 191% increase in storage policies. That's like a huge, and we're talking summertime when most times their storage policies are being reduced for people who are switching to not storage policy, uh, during the time that, uh, you know, they're taking their cars out their their nice cars, you know, classic cars and things like that. People who have their, their cars in storage and that they only drive in the summertime. So normally when you see a reduction in springtime in storage policies, they've seen a 191% increase. And of course, storage policies don't pay much money. No. But what does that say about um, the car market? You know, think of that just really means that there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people who have taken the insurance off their car 
And they're going to be trying to sell those cars. Yeah. Well, you see a 41% decrease in new policies purchased, right? Somebody buying a new car, that means a new policy. 41% decrease in new policies purchased translates to a likely 41% or around there decrease in the automotive sales market. Probably at least. Because some of those new policies purchased are guys like me Mm -hmm. taking their vehicle out of storage. Mm-hmm. and buying the policy so that you know that falls into new policies when i brought my truck out of storage yeah that falls into new policies it becomes and no a lot longer of people storage if you're if you're replacing your old car and upgrading to a new car you don't buy a new policy you transfer your existing coverage and maybe upgrade it well maybe but the point is my point was that that um I buy a new policy when I bring my car out of storage and people are not buying new policies, but some people are bringing their cars out of storage. I've seen some vehicles that, you know, obviously were in storage over the winter that have shown up in my neighborhood. So what I'm saying is I bet there's at least a 50% decline, probably closer to like a 70% decline in uh, sales of, of uh, new policies. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I don't know that this is what portion this is covering. Uh, did this cover Since from mid-March? Was it okay? So think about that from the per- from the perspective of the value of a used car. You've suddenly got tens of thousands of British Columbians uh, and people across the world who are no longer going to be going into the office. Uh, the family no longer needs two cars. The family is going to try and sell one car. What is the value of that car now? You're going to see some really cheap prices for used cars because the whole used car market is going to go flat. Are you saying I'm going to finally live my teenage dream car dream of getting a Mazda Miata? No. In British racing green? You probably could. Uh, and you probably could for a relatively good price. I think I, I could buy a you. Mazda I, Miata You could already. probably afford it. But the, uh, it's like a 92 car. Yeah. They still make them. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. But I don't want the MX-5. I want the Miata. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm very well, 12, specific. 1200 No. The point here is that like it, this is a, it just kicking car dealerships in the gut. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's going to just like the value of the of the cars they've got on the lot, the used cars they've got on the lot are actually probably dropping every day. They're probably losing 2% a day. If you probably all going to lose 40%. If you traded your car in from like September last year to, to February this year, you probably did pretty good compared to what you'd get now. Oh, yeah. I mean, your trade-in value is going to be very low because think of all those lease returns that people are not going to renew their lease. I mm-hmm. mean, lease returns across the board, people will not return, renew their lease. Other people are going to be trying to sell their second car. I've been looking at my second car, sitting there thinking, you know, do we need two cars that I can haul the kids around in? No. I mean, I'm fine with the truck. So I, I, I would imagine this is across the board. Uh, a lot of people are going to be looking at their that extra set of wheels and thinking, time to get rid of it which means a significant decline in revenue for ICBC. Well, they, the, David E.B. is basically saying, we don't know what's going to happen because if our investments recover, we may end up with a surplus. And if they tank, if the markets tank, there could be a loss this year of a billion dollars. It's just like the beginning. This is just the beginning. It's only going to get worse. I'm sorry to say it. I feel sorry for all of you students in law school right now getting ready to graduate. Um, you know, lots of lawyers been laid off. 
you know, let's spend a minute here. I just want to give a shout out, a podcast shout out to a fellow podcaster, a fellow legal podcaster who stuck his neck out to help out those students. Oh, Peter? Peter Sankoff. Yeah. Nice guy. I can't believe he went through this. And at the same time, he was hospitalized and nearly died. Yeah, he had a um, but bleed he, in uh, his brain and it almost killed him. Yeah. So when this all, uh, when the shit hit the fan here, he jumped into action because there were all of these students uh, in law school who had no job for the summer um, because they lost their job. And he uh, started a, a program to find internships for 100 students and internships that paid so he sought donations and i donated you donated mm -hmm. um people donated across the country and apparently some judge who remains nameless he i saw in a tweet the other day made a donation that finished it up um yeah, like 15 and, grand or something yeah a significant amount but the um he's managed to uh to find places uh you know paid places for all of those students mm -hmm. in the end we ended up uh not through his program but we've taken on three uh, oh, I, student I, interns i took on an intern through his program i didn't Is, tell you oh was, uh, we have four interns i've got someone working for me oh okay yeah all right i didn't tell you because i thought you might say no so i thought if i just pay it out of my own pocket paul can't tell me no and i don't have to tell him yeah but shouldn't <laughs> they be paid so they get paid I, I, i'm gonna send her an e-transfer no but she has to pay um cpp and i'm paying it to her yeah. as an honorarium on contracted legal work all right well, let's just hope she's not audited i'm sure you'll it's, be fine it's not uh, she's not my employee she's I've got her on contract to research a specific project, and I'm paying her a lump sum for it. I see. So you're like Uber. Anyway. Yes, exactly. Um, I, am, I am Uber. Yeah. <laughs> Just wait till she goes to the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal or whatever it is. No, no, no. It is. It's, uh, it's, uh, everything's binding arbitration according to the laws of Antarctica. Okay, good. <laughs> Great. Okay, so I guess we have four, four mm -hmm. students. Oh, well, we this is a nice surprise here. A lot of students. But... Um, four interns. We, you know, we made a commitment to people and you have to follow through on that. No, oh, I wasn't not going to not and follow I, through. I thought <clears throat> I we had We kept a real, all our staff on. We kept all our staff, kept all our students. I had a real problem hearing that all these students had jobs that were revoked. I thought, you know what? If you make a commitment to somebody that's a student to give them that articling experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Your you duty as a it. lawyer is to stick through, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't even think it has to be in paper. I think if you've made the agreement over the phone, then you stick with it. Mm -hmm. So you're a lawyer, and you stick with it even if it's painful for you, even if it costs you, even if you have to sell your second car, as far as I'm concerned, you stick with it. Yep. This is somebody's, you know, career on the line. Anyway, so I felt I felt bad enough that I got guilted into funding an internship and taking on an intern. <laughs> So, oh well, there you go. So I, I've I've made no money in the last uh, the last three months, but that's fine. <laughs> I paid for some students. Well, we have projects. We always have projects, things that we're investigating. We do R and D. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, moving on. I wanted to talk about an interesting decision from the BC Court of Appeal because you wouldn't think that driving law had much to do with the law of fraud or prior consistent statements, but turns out it does. Sometimes it does. So give me the summary on this one. So this case is uh, Regina and, and Badiel, um, and it's a case involving a doctor who was accused of fraudulently taking money from ICBC by essentially meeting patients, 
having them sign the lump sum treatment payment form in their meetings, giving them no treatment, saying, oh yeah, there's nothing I could do, or you don't qualify for treatments or whatever, but allegedly creating fake charts and billing each of them three times, three treatments per client, that's how you get your lump sum payment is three or fewer treatments, three treatments for each client, exactly the same chart notes, apparently, for each client, and all of these people coming to court and saying, we didn't, we didn't get these treatments, we didn't get anything, we don't know why he billed ICBC. And fascinating case, he was convicted at trial and uh, succeeded at the Court of Appeal in overturning his conviction, um, losing on all of the real legal arguments. But winning on the on the but, on the application of the reversal of burden of proof. Yeah, the burden of proof. And to get super like law nerdy for a moment, um, the thing that I found really interesting was the discussion in the case about um, similar fact evidence, because of course most of the time in well, our legal that's similar fact evidence. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing that was the that was the argument was you know most of the time in your legal system you can't you can't introduce evidence showing the same facts to say that somebody has a propensity to commit a crime in a certain way or that they've committed a number of crimes the same way so therefore it's more likely that they committed this crime and the court of appeal made a very interesting ruling about this so he was charged on a single count information so rather than a fraud for each of the people yeah, that he so it was treated one big fraud to it icbc was one big fraud to icbc they, you know, a fraudulent scheme can be one fraud for the well, purposes of an information. Over a period of time, they yeah. Do it. yeah. Between such but and it was such a... a date and such a such a date. Yeah, but they could have charged it either way, right? They could have charged the fraud mm -hmm. for each client, or they could have charged the one big fraud, saying that he had a scheme that he used these clients to perpetuate a scheme. The fascinating thing that I found about the decision was that the court of appeal said, if you charge a fraud that is a scheme like this on a single count information and you want to introduce the similar fact evidence, it's not actually similar fact evidence because it's all just the same evidence that goes towards proving the count. Yeah, that was my understanding of the law. But it's, it's, it, to me, that seems so wrong because it allows the crown to backdoor in what would otherwise be inadmissible evidence. And the Court of Appeal even says this, is that if they had charged each patient as a single count on the information, then he would not have been allowed to introduce the evidence that they did. But because it was one count, they can introduce all the similar fact evidence and backdoor in something that would otherwise be inadmissible and potentially prejudicial? To me, that gives the Crown too much power. Will you lay the charge so that you can skirt an evidentiary rule? See, I, I don't think it. I, I don't think it's classic similar fact evidence. Classic similar fact evidence is similar fact of something that you haven't charged. That's something that's not there on the on the indictment or the information. So it might be from a, a case that was prosecuted that they discontinued the prosecution and they went a peace bond and you you know you always strangle the woman the same way or something like that that or or cases where you you didn't proceed for whatever reason um, that is really the similar fact situation this is all somebody committing multiple offenses the same way and him being found out and caught and prosecuted for doing the multiple offenses in the same way 
does it lead to the same potential it, prejudice? Yeah, it does. See, to but me, the it, other similar fact evidence can also get in in certain circumstances if it meets the if it meets the test, if its probative value outweighs the prejudicial effect and so forth. So it's not, I mean, to me, I, I see it. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I don't think it's, uh, th I mean, this is, the, the Court of Appeal sounds to me like they're just applying the rule the way that I understood the rule to exist. Well, I just, I, I don't like the rule. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You don't have to like it. I don't like it. You don't and, have to like it. You, know, you don't, yeah. When I'm Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. How can you change not... that? How can you change that? The guy's, you know, this is his mo and this is what he does and you know he's doing it all together it's all one count it's one charge then they only need you to gotta, introduce the gotta... evidence of one of the frauds to prove it yeah well that's all they needed anyway they got lots in they could have laid it as a bunch of different ones and had 12 different trials i mean that would have been ridiculous i don't know uh, anyway i did i didn't like it it bothered me I don't. I think that that rule that that the, allowing the crown to do it that way, to my mind, is prejudicial. So did they? they did they argue that at the appeal? Yeah, or, and they, they did. lost it. And they lost. Good. And you know what? Richard Peck argued that at the court of appeal, and he did the same view that I did. So I don't feel so wrong. Highly oh, respected he, defense a, lawyer. He's a, a brilliant guy and a, and a really nice guy. But uh, you know, again, you and Rick are wrong. I'm right. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> I feel like I'm in the Court of Appeal right now. There you go. That's great. You're wrong. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll sit down. Um, okay, so, so anyway. So that was your interesting part of it. That was my interesting part of it. You were, I think, more interested in the reversal of the burden of proof. Well, yeah, because that seemed to me to be the bigger problem there. Um, when I read the summary, and I started going through the facts. Give us the description. Of the facts? No, give us the description of the... the, the uh, burden of proof reversal because i've been thinking about this in other contexts lately um well essentially the argument was that the judge um didn't consistently uh give effect to the principle that the burden of proof always remained on the crown and effectively required mr badial to provide explanations about things like um uh like the computer system that he was using um, the, the judge never explained why there was all this evidence of, of a computer billing system, um, that just never raised a reasonable doubt, um, that it apparently could have. Yeah. Well, you think about, there's all sorts of things that are just precedents, uh, and your, your computer billing system makes the invoice look the same every time. Well, and, and it, you don't necessarily know what there is. So if yeah. he runs that argument, um, or puts that in or the, the evidence is there of it, you would think at that point that might raise a reasonable doubt. Well, also, he had a staff member entering all of the billing information for him. So, you know, maybe he had no intention to commit a fraud. Maybe his staff member just did it the same way every time because she thought that was how we, she was supposed to do it. Well, there's an interesting thing about that. So I was loading the truck the other day with file boxes, and every time I do, I always think of the thing that we joke that we make in the office, that I'm going to do a Conrad Black maneuver. Um, there was other discussion about what a Conrad Black maneuver was at one point, but we settled on that and was loading boxes into a vehicle. Um, and of course, Conrad Black was convicted of taking out documents that he was prohibited from taking out by virtue of a court order, mm -hmm. um, removing things from his office. And he's on video and his driver looks up at the video at one point, which was really, you know, damning. Uh, but he ran the argument that, look, my secretary prepared all this for me. She knew about it. And I told her, don't give me anything that's, you know, bound by this rule. I just want like my 
personal crap out of there that I'm allowed to take. And he ran that argument um, and he lost and he was convicted. And that's ultimately what he ended up serving his jail sentence for, which is why I've never felt that he was, he was. You uh, thought was there a, was a reversal of the burden of proof. Yeah. And I think he was wrongfully convicted and I, I can barely stand him. Um, but I think he was wrongfully convicted. That was the charge that they were, that they prosecuted him on. Um, and that's what he was convicted and ultimately served his jail sentence for. And I think they reversed the, the burden of proof there at that point. And I also think that he had raised a reasonable doubt because he'd, and you know, it was, that was the argument clear from the, the moment, uh, of the beginning of the prosecution's case that that, you know, his secretary was going to testify and say, yeah, I guess I put that stuff in there and I thought that was all the stuff that he was allowed to take. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I just wanted to thought we should talk about driving law and fraud. Driving fraud. Driving fraud, which um, happens a lot. Yeah. Do we have a ridiculous driver of the week this week? Oh, Paul. Oh, we do. Do, do I send it to you? Do we ever? Somebody sent it to me like at 11 o'clock at night and it had just come out six minutes earlier, the news story. So. <laughs> this is this is the most. He, he, I, I tweeted, uh, he, we have a winner. Yeah. It's, uh, well, why don't you, you love it so much. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, it was in Ontario, uh, as it often is the case. You know, I, I think Florida takes a bad rap and we should just lay off Florida for a while. But Yeah. I mean, really, it's just. Ontario is the Florida of Canada. Exactly. <laughs> um, people who live in Southern Ontario always brag about, well, you know, we're like as far south as Northern California. Like, so what? I mean, you still gets miserable weather mm -hmm. um, and uh, and extraordinarily disgustingly hot in the summer. Anyway, uh, driving on a uh, Ontario highway, this driver, uh, 18 years old, they said the story originally said 19, uh, was... Um, Stopped and it looked like a laser. They looked like they used, a, I think, an ultralight. Um, 308 kilometers an hour. Beautiful. 308 kilometers an hour. And that, my that, first thought that was... That beats every record that every client I've had has set. I know. Um, I had a client who... <laughs> I, I've not had one of those. I, one of I've those had close, but nothing, sunny. nothing uh, at the three hundreds. But that was—I uh, didn't think you could accomplish that in a Mercedes. It uh, looked like a C-class, probably an AMG. I think somebody tweeted back to me that it was an AMG. But in Germany, the cars are speed limited to two hundred and forty kilometers an hour. So all of the German <laughs> manufacturers, including Porsche have made their cars so they have a top end. And people sometimes buy Jaguars in Germany because they don't have that speed limiter. Right. Um, so I didn't think that you could go that fast. And, you know, so I think that maybe he's got a defense, but people sent me uh, uh, links to YouTube videos showing how you can disable the speed limiter <laughs> in a Mercedes just by sitting uh, at the uh, uh, behind the wheel and and going through the um, scroll through screen on the thing. So, yeah, um, 308 kilometers an hour. But that that speed limiter thing that you mentioned actually brings up. Um, an interesting point that I was thinking about, you know, it would be open to every province and territory to put a regulation in their highway traffic regulations or their motor vehicle act regulations or equivalent um, to say, you must have a speed regulator in your vehicle that regulates your vehicle speed to not go more than, I don't know, 150 kilometers an hour. Transport like Canada. Yeah. Transport Canada can do it. It's a breeze. Yeah, it would be easy and it can be done by regulation. So it doesn't even require a legislative amendment and debate and blah, blah, blah. Um, and every vehicle's got the, the capacity now. Oh. Every manufacturer's got the capacity to do yeah. that. 
in in just a software programming thing. It's literally like they just they they it's already programmed in there. They just don't turn it on because they don't have to. Yeah. So what bothers me is you know we know that the government messaging about speed is that speed is the number one speed kills yes yeah, speed kills speed's the number one or maybe the number two or the maybe the number three depending on whether they're focusing on speed or distracted or impaired driving but it's one of the top three killers on our roadways they have the legal authority and the technology to stop ridiculous speeds and they don't they choose not to and to me paul that tells me that they don't actually care about road safety. This isn't about saving lives and keeping people safe on the roadway. This is about keeping them capable of earning their revenue that they get from having um, from having the the vehicles being pulled over and people being stopped for speeding. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I hear you. This is this is entirely a, a, a deliberate decision by government to keep bringing in dollars at the expense of road safety. I think they're probably lobbied by auto manufacturers. Um, what do auto manufacturers care? They want to be able to sell that car that's faster and faster and faster because oh, the they know AMG people will come buy the, it. The yeah. turbo and the whatever other the I on the Mercedes or, or on the BMW or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't care. Um, I don't want to go that fast. I'm happy to go slow. But the um, I, it seems to me that it would be a no-brainer to limit them to 180. Uh, because there's nowhere in Canada that you can lawfully drive over 130, yeah. 120. <laughs> 120. 120. And um, there's nowhere in the States that you're going to drive except northern Montana, I think, or somewhere like that. There's a few spots where you, you've got no speed limit. Um, and maybe in North Dakota, I know at one point they had no speed limit on a couple of roads. Uh, but really, like... You know, set it at 180, set it at 200. There's nobody needs to go uh, at speeds that fast or faster than 180. And you're still going to get your speeding ticket fine revenue from the people who are going 170. Exactly, exactly. So I don't know. I, 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 I've been surprised for a long time that they haven't done this. I, yeah. I'm, I'm a guy who likes to drive fast. I, you know, I've always liked, I'm a bit of a car guy. I'm not too much of a car guy. <laughs> But, you know, I, 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 I see no purpose in cars that can go that fast in, in Canada. So let me ask you this. Did our ridiculous driver of the week end up with a dangerous driving charge? It said that he did in the story I saw the next day. The story I saw that day just said a speeding ticket, but the story I saw the next day said a dangerous driving charge. So uh, we've discussed this, of course, on the podcast now that the Supreme Court of Canada's decision mm-hmm. uh, has opened that up. And, you know... He's See, a person who could justify that. One one forty on Oak Street. I'm kind of with with the original trial judge. Eh, I got doubt about that, but three hundred. That's dangerous. Like, yeah. I, you can't. You don't have enough time at three hundred kilometers an hour to even see what's approaching and react to it. No, that's aircraft speed. It's uh, a Cessna one fifty. I think takes off at one hundred and fifty miles an hour. This is uh, Cessna. Uh, the next one's like that's standard speed for them this is 185 miles an hour 308 185 190 miles an hour you know that is absolutely ridiculous absolutely ridiculous there's it's not justified in any way shape or form it's not safe it is dangerous to the public and it doesn't matter if there's almost nobody on the road it's dangerous to the public you can you lose control uh you're gonna go off the road and you can land in a house it's dangerous to the public you yeah. can come up on a car so fast you don't even know that it's coming. I mean, 
If a car is going 100 kilometers an hour, you're going 200 kilometers an hour faster than it as you approach it. <clears throat> well, there you go. So, the Driving Law Podcast has now become the advocate for... <laughs> for speed limiters. Speed limiters on cars. <laughs> I never thought that. You know, we do defend speeding tickets and a lot of them. Look, I, but you're not going to eliminate speeding tickets by setting a speed limiter at a speed that still allows people to exceed the speed limit. Plus, the majority of the speeding tickets that we get are people who are doing... 80 in a 50 zone on Granville Street. I was about to say 80 in a 50 on Granville? Yeah, yeah. 80 in a 50 on Granville. 80 in a 50 on the viaduct? Yeah, yeah. 80 in a 50 in lots of places in the Lower Mainland, or the people who are on Highway 1 in the 90 zone who are doing like 130, 140. Yeah. And yeah, okay, I get the, you know, the occasional 200 kilometer an hour plus Highway 1 person. Those are rare enough that it's not exactly like it's going to eliminate a ton of revenue see the thing is in the old days you couldn't put a speed limiter on the car because it you know if anything you would be just putting on a smaller carburetor or something or a smaller engine and you would not <clears throat> you, you you'd be taking away the power for the car for the entire car you put a speed limiter on a car now it's electronic you can you can punch it and get up to that speed and then just have it not allow it to go beyond that and the and not you know, it's not going to be starving the engine or something like that. Well, people, uh, you know, people, when I suggested speed limiters, I think in a tweet at some point, people were saying, oh, everybody will just disable them right away. Well, so what? A lot of people won't. Yeah, I mean, some people, people will be trying to figure out how to disable it. And we maybe still there'll have, be some chip you can buy or something. Or we some still have regulations thing. about window tint. And people go and put on their illegal window tint. We have regulations about the types of lights that you can have on your vehicle. And people go and... You know, and the other thing lights. is, like, if, you know, if I buy a car and my kid's driving it, I don't have, you know, necessarily control over my kid driving, but I'm not going to disable that thing. No. So my kid's not going to be able to go 200. And if you, you know, again, I think I've made this point before <clears throat> on the podcast, if you have a generational shift about something that's done in driving, you know, if an entire generation is raised driving their parents' cars and not being able to drive over 170 kilometers an hour, then... It, driving over 170 kilometers an hour will just not really culturally be a thing that comes to people's minds. I'm with you, Kyla. I just think that the people who buy the Ferraris, the Porsches, and the BMWs here in the lower mainland will be up in arms. Oh, my God. The Range Rover. I can't get my Range Rover well, up to the, 190 the, kilometers an hour. The people that were up in arms about it when I made the comment were saying... What about if I want to take my vehicle to the track? And I thought, you know what? These are the same arguments that the gun people <clears throat> are using. They're saying, oh, I should be allowed. I have these guns and I use them lawfully at a range. So I should be allowed to take my assault style rifles to the range to shoot them because it's fun there and it's safe and I'm following the law. Well, hang on. <clears throat> There's a Nissan that you can buy that is capable of driving well in excess of 300 kilometers an hour. I don't know that you can buy it in Canada anymore, but they did sell it in Japan and people were importing it from Japan. I've defended some clients who had them. They're rockets. They're not really a very good looking car, but they are just unbelievably fast. Just fast. And the ones that you buy in Japan have GPS in there. And if you take it to the track, it turns off the speed limiter My point. when you're on the track. My point exactly. So it's pre-programmed in. Um, you drive it to the track, you get it on the track, you know, you can open it up. And you can set it so if if you drive into the United States, uh, you know, 20 miles into the U.S., that your speed limiter 
turns off. Yeah. You know, so, the Canadian government can, can do that too. Or that can be an option for those people who want to buy that Lamborghini. Yeah. And, and then you wouldn't have to deal with that problem. But I also think just because there's a track where you can drive that fast right now doesn't mean you have a right to do that. And this is the argument that a lot of people are having with the gun people is, is just because you own the guns and just because you go shoot them at the range and you follow the law, we, there is no constitutional right. The Supreme Court of Canada said a bunch of times. Amendment. Your right to have a car that goes as fast as you yeah, want. Right after the, right after the, the, or right before the 43rd Amendment, your right to have any guns you want. Exactly. I, I just, I, I don't know. I just constitutionally, you don't have a right to do it and there's no need to do it. We could very quickly speak about the, um, the right to bear arms in Canada. There isn't one. The government could come along and could, uh, abolish the, your, your any, right any, any gun, gun, any gun, any gun. They, they could, would, they could outlaw guns. They would probably butt up against a constitutional challenge involving indigenous hunting rights, but yes. But even then, you know, there was no guns before people uh, came yeah. from Europe. Uh, so case law has already recognized that your your rights evolve with technology. Yes, I know, but if you nobody has the right, nobody has the right. I think they could probably do it if they really wanted to. I don't want them to do it. There's still lots of people who need guns for very good safety reasons and uh, there's is nothing wrong with the person who's lawfully using their gun and is safe and storing it and everything. Of course, the problem we have is that not everybody's thinking clearly all the time. Nope. So you don't have a constitutional right to bear arms. You don't have a constitutional right to drive 300 kilometers an hour. And if you do, I don't know a lot of people who are going to have a ton of sympathy for you. And now the criminal code changed over a year and a bit ago, December 2018. Uh, they, they actually say in the criminal code now that driving is a privilege, not a right. Before that, there was a case from England that said everybody's got a right to use the king's highways. And then there was a case from British Columbia where the judge, you know, threw out the comment that it's a privilege. The reality is they could not deny you having a license if you met all the requirements. So in that sense, it was a right. They can't arbitrarily come along and say, I don't like you. I don't like your nose. You don't get a driver's license. And they still can't do that. People but they were are... always entitled to put rules on it. And if you break the rules, uh, you know, you could lose it. And it's just like if you break the rules, you can go to jail. Yep. So it's just a series of, uh, a progressive series of, uh, of uh, restrictions that they can do. Well, there you go. There's our podcast. We learned a lot. We covered a lot. We covered fraud, uh, similar fact evidence, uh, constitutional ICBC, rights, ICBC. situations. Oh, wow, yeah. this was a so jam-packed podcast. Jam-packed episode. It's a good so. one. Everybody, tell your friends. Tell your friends yeah. you learned most of Canadian law in one episode. Exactly. <laughs> and for I, that reason. I haven't felt like much of a lawyer in the last few weeks because I haven't done much of lawyering, but I had to turn my mind to thinking like a lawyer. Tune in next week for another exciting episode featuring Eric McGracken. Eric will be on next week. Eric Good. will be on next week. And we will bring you another jam-packed episode of Driving Law. 